Uh, the Daniels are very, very organized, which if you're making a movie like everything everywhere all at once, you have to be Yeah. like such a confusing script. I think I read this script five times and I was like, I get it. But like I, I would make a list of all the different multiverses and all the different characters just to keep myself organized. But there were so many parts that I, I had no idea where we were or what we were shooting. Because <laughs> right, like, you don't shoot universe. in order, right? Yeah. What's up, everybody? My name is Brazil, and welcome to my podcast. Today, I have filmmaker, skater, dad extraordinaire, and just cool mother Mr. Matt Ardine. Hey, thanks for having me. What's up, man? We were just talking about how, you know, you can show clips to your kids of you at the skate park <laughs> doing a 720, yeah. and they're barely even impressed with that. Yeah. That's trippy, right? Like when we grow up, if our parents were doing that kind of stuff, that would have been the most amazing thing. Yeah, they'd be like, let me let me pause Minecraft so dad can show me a 720 <laughs> on a 30 foot ramp. <laughs> <laughs> now, when we say skating, for those out there that are watching, we're talking about aggressive inline skating. Like everything you think you've seen skateboarders or BMXers do, but on rollerblades. Matt and I do that. He does it way better than me. Um, you're actually really good. <laughs> uh, were you ever like amateur or pro or anything like that? I had a sponsor when I was like a senior in high school. And uh, then when I went to college, I just got so engrossed in filmmaking. It was like skating became more of a hobby than a thing I was right trying to go to professionally. But you stayed good at it. <laughs> yeah. You know, as in everything in life, it comes in waves. So there's years where like I'm skating a lot. That's one of these years this year, like right. two to three times a week, like That's every great. time going out, trying to learn new tricks. And then when my kids were young, it was like not skating that much. And when I was really right. trying to get my career going, not skating that much. But it's always been a thing in my life for like 27 years now, 26 years. I love that. I, I want to do it for as long as I can as well. You know, I knew early on that it wasn't going to be a career. Mm -hmm. But I knew it led to so much of my creativity, right? Making skate Same videos totally. is is everything right now. You actually work on feature films and mm -hmm. the kind of narrative projects that I one day want to work on. So why don't we start with that? Yeah. Specifically, what is your job? What do you do? So I work as a lighting designer and a gaffer, Okay, which uh, is usually different jobs for me. Right. Lighting designer, I do a lot of uh, lighting that goes with music. Right. And like a lot of dance performance type lighting too. Yeah. Broadcast concerts, iHeartRadio, musicals, commercials that like the lighting is specifically going where to Where you're syncing it, where you're saying there's a cue here and you're programming exactly. it. Like an like LD on a tour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's like my specialty that I do. And that's okay. what I really love doing to for me, that's where I can really get creative. Yeah. Um, but then I also work as like a gaffer. I also work as like a gaffer where I'm working for the cinematographer, the director of photography. Right. To as the head of the lighting department. Right. To sort of enact their creative vision, get that going and actually what's in their head get it get it out there on the film or the choosing what or lights how to put them there how to mm -hmm. get the, the the hardware in place to mm -hmm. shape the light to do the job yeah and managing a department of three sometimes up to like 50 sometimes right you know, like massive setups down to a couple lights for an interview type setup yeah. and recently you did on oh, probably, probably did a bunch of stuff recently mm -hmm. but most notably recently you did the everything everywhere all at once movie yeah what was that experience like and what was your title on that one and how did that work so i was a gaffer on that one um i have probably 12 years experience working with the daniels and even more experience working with Lark and Seipel, the DP. We actually went to college together. No 
his first day at college, I was a sophomore and I met him and he worked for me for years and then he started shooting more. Wow. And then we started working for the Daniels on a- uh, Who are the Daniels? The Daniels are the directors of everything, mm. everywhere, all at once. Directors, <clears throat> writers, producers. Okay. Um, we did a music video with them back in 2010. And then we've done tons of music videos, commercials, and two movies with them. The previous movie we did with them was Swiss Army Man. I think we filmed oh, that in nice. like 2014, maybe. That's so dope. it's always a trip working with them. So you've had the relationship with them already. Yeah. From a while. And is that how you got into it? Like, let's take it back to the beginning, mm -hmm. right? Because I definitely want to talk about the movie and get specific onto these projects. Yeah. But how does one go from being a skater to working on feature films? I think it was very similar to you with skating. A lot of times you're filming videos. Right. And so bought a little camera. You know, I think I was working at Dunkin' Donuts and saved up enough money to hmm. buy a, a camera. And then a, you got to get the fish eye. Right. Another $300. The wide angle death lens. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Two yeah. more weeks of working at Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> just to get the lens. And then editing software. And so I'd make my own skate videos. Yeah. So I think that was around high school when I started making my own skate videos after skating for a few years. Yeah. And then I was super lucky. My high school had video production class. Okay. And like film studies classes. So I took all those. Were they knowledgeable? Were they actually like yeah, informative? The teacher yeah. is awesome. That's and great. we had equipment. And um, and so I was able to make skate videos, but then take these classes that sort of taught me more about video and film production. And then by my senior year, I'd already taken every single class that I could take. And the teacher right. was like, make up your own class. Like you should still keep doing this. I'm like, all right, I'm going to make a class in cinematography. She's like, all right, I'll sign off every day. You show up and like, just get books and then make projects. And wow. I'll she could out. tell that you were studying yeah, and that you were applying yourself. And she was like, keep, keep doing it. Yeah. So it's basically like a free period, but as like any serious filmmaker, like you take that seriously. Yeah. I know like if my son right now, he's in high school, if he's like free period, he's like, I'm going home. Whereas yeah. me, like I want to learn about cinematography and, right read all these books wrote papers on lighting and got really into it that's awesome into the science of it yeah and then my teacher was like well you're gonna go to college you should go to emerson and study film i'm like all right sure where is that <laughs> did you grow up here uh, i grew up in boston area okay boston is so emerson Emerson's out there in boston okay. yeah so i applied to like a bunch of different film schools and actually i think like emerson was probably like number six or number seven mm -hmm. for me and in all the other ones either right. got into the university but not the film school like i think like rochester they're like congratulations you got in you're in the textiles division i'm like that's not what i want to do <laughs> i'm going to film school yeah so i picked emerson and uh i loved it like it, it changed my life and set me off on the right foot there because i think with anything with filmmaking you can't really take a class and walk out of that class and be like i know everything i'm now a great filmmaker right like if you're looking for a film school, you want a school where, yeah, there are classes, you know, they are important, but filmmaking is all about being a go-getter. Right. And what Emerson had was like 20 clubs just devoted to film and video. Mm. So every weekend you're either working on someone's project or making your own project. So you're practicing in the field, yeah. really trying things. And you leave college with like a reel and a resume from all these projects. And that friends. You create. Yeah. And Larkin Seipel, um, I was a sophomore. He was one year below. He was the a DP freshman. for everything, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And most of my career has been gaffing for Larkin, who met in film school here. So wow. 
I was actually gaffer on a feature film my sophomore year. And we had like a big night exterior. And for anyone lighting, like net yeah. exteriors are usually the most difficult thing to do. The most a equipment. huge amount of light. Yeah, large yeah. space. You need a large crew. So it was orientation week for the freshmen and went to a party and this one kid's like, I want to work on films. I'm like, lucky you, you want to come run 2000 feet of cable tomorrow in the forest? Right. Yeah. And Lark and his friends are like, yeah, we're going to go work on a real movie. It was like student film, no right. one got paid. And I'm like, run this cable from here all the way to over there. It's going to power our lights. Right. <laughs> and uh, they're like, this is amazing. That first experience on a film set is so important. Yeah. Like I remember the first time I went to a real music video set in Chicago and I saw a camera that had like the map box and the focus. It was like a fully built out cinema yeah. camera. And you see that and you're just like, oh, like <laughs> there's just such magic in it, you know, yeah. in creating. So, okay. So you went to film school. Mm -hmm. When you went to film school, did you think you were going to be a director or writer or anything else? Or did you know lighting was your focus? So my freshman year from going in from high school, I was like, I want to edit or I want to be a DP. Right. And then my first semester, I actually got like a few music videos that I was editor on. Okay. And I was like, this is miserable. I'm by myself <laughs> in a room. No, yeah. thank you. Like I want to be on set. So I was like, all right, I'm gonna be a DP. Right. And so like all throughout college, I was DP on stuff. And then even when I moved to LA, uh after i graduated college actually like the last semester i moved to la i was like oh i'm still gonna be dp but uh i was actually already in iatsi the film union working as a set electrician doing how did you get that because it feels like that's already many steps into doing it yeah that was sort of did abnormal. you just have really good advice from school because the kind of things you're describing are things i usually hear people do much later than school yeah so my freshman year uh, there was this one DP that I saw that was like a senior and I was like, I'm gonna do everything I can to work on his films. Yeah. And like, he gave a presentation and you know, like after presentations, you go right up to them and you're like, hi, I'm Matt. <laughs> I want to work on your next film. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like th what Larkin did to me that year. And, uh, they had like money to get real lights and real equipment and through them meant the rental house and the rental house put me on jobs as like a sophomore in college. Like, wow. 50 bucks a day to go drive a minivan and set up lights. So by my senior year and the end of junior year, I was actually working on The Departed, the Martin Scorsese film as an electrician and as a grip. Ooh, that's a great night. movie. Yeah, it's a really good movie. Uh, in Chinatown, working all night and then like during the day taking cinematography classes. Wow. So I'm like setting up lights for Michael Bauhaus, like legendary mm. DP, and then during the day taking a class from a like a failed cinematographer it wasn't very good. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's not how Michael Bauhaus lit the scene last night. Right, right. <laughs> well, actually, so that's amazing because what I'm hearing you say is you were proactive. Mm -hmm. you, you did whatever you could to immerse yourself in it and you were contributing to the projects. Yeah. Right? Like that mindset wasn't just give me a job. You said, I want to work on your film, just like Homeboy wanted to do the cables for your film, right? Mm -hmm. It's It's, you have to be connected to wanting to contribute like the highest paid people are, are technically the highest contributors for the most part unless mm -hmm. you have like some random like stock owner or whatever but like yeah. creatives that get paid a lot and get hired a lot is because they contribute a lot right so you were focused on how you could solve those problems so in that world you were you were going to college you were taking the classes you were working on student film projects mm -hmm. you were working with the rental house doing whatever random grip pa job you could so then that stuff gave you the union Mm -hmm. 
Now, when you join the union, because I'm not in it, is it you join it once for everything, or is there a union for a DP, union for gaffer, union for grip? Is it? Um. So as it works for lighting, props, costumes, like all those type of jobs, pretty yeah. much everything besides camera. Okay. It's by your region. So I was in local 481, IATSE local 481, which was co covered like Massachusetts area. Boston. It's kind of like an area code. Yeah. Okay. Um, but then when I moved to Los Angeles, uh, even though I was in IATSE, I couldn't work on union films because that lighting here is IATSE local 728. So you have to join this one so as you if to, you've never had the other one. Right. Almost. So you have yeah. to get 30 days working on a union movie to join the union. That's Got like it. a catch 22. How do you, you can't work on a new union movie unless you're in the union. So how'd you get that? So there's two main ways I do it. And, uh, one way is you work on like a low budget movie that's non-union. Okay. And then they might sign a contract to go union. So then you can stay on. Got that it. That was like my MO. Like if it was, gets flipped to union. Yeah. So that's usually like the budget range of like a million to $2 million. Right. They'll try to start non-union and like, oh, we're going to save some money and do non-union. But then eventually the crew's like, no, we do want healthcare. Like, So that's just... Uh it might happen. Right. So you might work on that independent film mm -hmm. and it not be union at all. Right. And then you still don't have your 30 days. Exactly. So it transferring over to being union is just one of the ways that could happen. Yeah. How did it happen for you? That is the way. Okay. So you worked so on it. Did working... you have in mind that it was going to flip? Was that part of the strategy? Yeah. I think it took me like three movies to get all the days to do it. Okay. So working, I think one of them I was working as a set lighting technician and the other one working as the best boy electric on and got it. Got my days. The other method um, that they allow is that if everyone in the union's working, then say I'm I'm um, mm -hmm. gaffer. I, I can't find anybody because everyone in the union is working. I'll call the union. I'll be like, hey, I need five people for tomorrow. And they'll be like, everyone's working. Just hire non-union. So that's another way. But most people Got get it. on by working a smaller budget show that then turns union. Got it. So then like if I wanted to join a union, I mm -hmm. would have to find a way onto union projects or what kind of project gets flipped. Yeah. yeah. And then you rack up the days and then mm -hmm. you pay a fee. Yeah, you have initiation fee and then quarterly dues. And do you have to take like a test or something? Like you told me um, that you teach for IATSE. Yeah. So it's weird. In Boston, I had to take an electrician test Okay. to work as an electrician. In LA, you don't, but you have like 35 hours of required training. You don't have to train as an electrician in LA to be an electrician? So you have to take safety classes. Okay. There's like... I, I, I'm sort of making up the number, but I think it's around like 35 hours of safety classes on different topics. Like how to not blow fuses and yeah. water. Drive condors, yeah. fire extinguishers, right. lockout tago, all this stuff. Okay. So you're required to take these classes, but you don't have an entrance exam like some of got the locals do. You just got to go through it so that you know not to fuck shit up. Yeah. Okay. Or if shit is fucking up, how to stop it from fucking up. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty important to know. Yeah. So, so you got that, you were in the union, you're in LA, then what happened? Then it's back to what we talked about when you first start film school. It's starting at the bottom and finding projects and finding people that you know are going to go places and sort of holding onto their coattails <laughs> and doing the best you can yeah. to get them there. And it was at a certain point, it was like, uh, I don't think I really want to DP anymore. Like the more creative stuff I do is more towards like the lighting design side. Right. Um, so I want to do that and work as a gaffer. And when you work as a gaffer, you can quickly realize like, oh, this DP has like a great eye. 
Right. And so you find someone like that and you're like, well, I'm going to work on every job that they bring, every job they call me for. I'm going to take that because right. I can see that they're going somewhere. And so you felt that in him. Yeah. Definitely. You respected his work because also as a gaffer, you're it's so much physical labor. It can be, you mm -hmm. know, that if you're doing all that labor for DP and you don't even like their vision. Yeah. What's the point of it? Then your reel looks like shit. That happens a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily these days, I don't need to do too much of the physical labor. Right. I'm more of a, I like to say I'm a pointer. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you want to, I mean, with anything you're working on, you want the project to come out good. Right. Why put in labor into anything that you don't really believe in? What makes the difference between a good and bad DP and why do bad DPs get jobs? Um... I think there, there, the one part is like creating results. Mm. So you look at the image, you're like, this image is really serving the story. And notice I'm not like saying beautiful because not all beautiful images are necessarily good. Right. You know, like if you watched everything ever all at once, there's a lot of scenes you're like that. We're like, we're not lighting Jamie Lee Curtis, very flattering, but like it's telling the story. Right. It's how it's serving the story. Exactly. So that's the one part of the DP is like, are they serving the story? Is it showing up on camera? The other part is like, are they enjoyable to work with? Because mm. like, there's some real dickheads that make beautiful movies, and I'm like, I, I would never want to work with them. Yeah. And a lot of directors aren't going to hire that person either because they're not enjoyable to work with. Because you spend so much time on set. Yeah. It's like twelve, 12 hour days. Twelve yeah. hours a day. Like, some movies. I'm doing a movie next year that's like ninety days of filming. I don't want to wow. work with anyone I don't want to be with. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. They're, you're they're your family basically. Yeah. Straight up. Why do you think? bad dps get jobs i think it's luck and at a certain point luck runs out you know it all it all gets filtered out after a while yeah bad dps only get jobs for a certain amount of time until they don't yeah but some of them like they may not deliver the image but like hell you like working with them right you it know, might be that they going. might just be just an awesome person yeah with like a b plus and there's a lot execution. of those you know? yeah and that's fine i'd rather that than someone that creates images that are beautiful but they're horrible to work with yeah well because it also affects the vibe right like what was that famous thing that happened with christian bale remember that when there was like yeah. a somebody yeah. moving around in the background and he started yeah. yelling at them i've heard a lot of actors say that like the dp is the person creating the vibes on set mm. you know like they're the ones running most of the crew they're the ones coordinating between the departments right if they're not organized and if they're yelling then everyone else is going to be yelling yeah yeah because it affects the final product so many other jobs you could technically have a bad vibe and not change the product i've said this before in a couple of podcasts right like if if you have a cranky accountant the numbers are what the numbers are but if the vibe is bad on set it affects the actors it yeah. actually affects the product totally you know you could just feel the tension even actors if be like, i'm gonna do two takes and get the hell out of here yeah or maybe like if it was a good vibe they'd go to take five take ten and get it better yeah but they want to get back to their trailer and not have to deal with this <laughs> you know yeah did you work on um this is america too yeah yeah the challenge gambino video yeah yeah that's amazing that was a trip yeah well, that was same dp archetypal oh yeah and uh hero mariah was a director who, who directs atlanta a lot too right yeah huge fan of hero he does atlanta awesome is stuff. so good it we is. just started watching it back again from the top and it's like i like how atlanta they're so patient with things like they'll they'll let a shot just be mm -hmm. wide no coverage or we'll just get the back of somebody's head like it's very 
it's not trying to like let me entertain you with different shots every two seconds it's like it's patient it's yeah. really beautifully told did they shoot that on film or did they just print scan i don't know i don't know but like they're a great trio of hero as director christian springer's the dp and then uh cody as the gaffer like they've done amazing work together the three of them how was it doing that this is america video because it had so many you gaffed that one yeah that's amazing. How did you guys plan that out with so many things happening at once? Like, what was the approach to that project? Um, so we we filmed it all in one building. The whole, everything in there was all in one building. Uh, and when we scouted, Hero uh, very much listens to his cinematographers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of directors are like, this is the way that we're looking. Mm -hmm. Actors are going here. I was like, well... The light's horrible there, especially at noon when you want to shoot. Right. Like, sure, we can do that. It's going to take us a long time to light with right. artificial light to, like, make this look good. Whereas Hero's like, well, here's the idea of the scene. Let's look around. Where do you think, Larkin? And Larkin's like, oh, let's look this way at 2 o'clock. And, uh, well, the sun's directly overhead because there's no direct yeah. sunlight here. So the DP actually gets to do their job instead of just exactly. trying to facilitate whatever the director wants. Mm -hmm. They want to serve the story, but they're the DP for a reason. Let them D the P. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, don't pigeonhole them to that. Like, this is where the shot needs to be. Right. So everything that's daylight in there uh, is completely based around what time of day it was, which way we're looking so that we could use mostly sunlight. Like my job as a gaffer on that was very minimal. We used very little artificial light. Yeah. Most of it was just the angle of the sun and where the talent's being put. But what's funny is like we scouted that and I was like, okay, I know where each scene is. I get what's going on. I've read the treatment many times and then we're filming and I'm like, all right, I see what Hero and Donald are doing here. Don Donald Childish Gambino. Yeah. You know, like, I think there's like some metaphors going on here. <laughs> and I'm like, but I'm, you know, a lot of times I'm so busy in the lighting, like, I don't get a lot of these metaphors and other stuff that's happening. And right. then I go and watch it. And I'm like, this thing's a freaking masterpiece. Masterpiece. And I'm thinking in my head, like, all right, I, like, I was talking with Donald and Hero that whole shoot. Like, yeah. it was like my eighth music video doing with Childish Gambino. Oh wow, you did the other ones too? Which yeah, one did, did you do? Um I I think it's easier to say I didn't do two of them. I didn't do the one of him on the first wheel. Uh which was like You did did you do sober? Which one was that one? Him in the diner. And I didn't do that one. Okay. So I did um the one where he was in a forest. Yeah. And like and uh and then like alien I don't want to ruin it. People haven't seen it. <laughs> but we were in Hawaii. We did like two music videos in Hawaii and like uh former on LA. One of them, I was actually the underwater camera operator. The whole shot is one shot of Donald falling into the water and me being pulled back on, on our, with scuba doing camera operating and the whole thing's in slow motion for the whole song. One shot. That's dope. And That's then, amazing. Uh, Dick Earn, I think was one of them. I can't remember as all the name of them. That's I had no idea you worked on all that. Man. Oh yeah. They're great. Hero and Donald are like the artist collaborators of like the decade like they've come up with amazing stuff i agree i would say i think he's very underrated in just how creative mm. he is like my favorite artist would be kanye musically and everything else he does i really like so much and then Childish gambino also because every song he makes has a concept to it mm -hmm. his music videos they feel like they're an entire world that they create a lot of other artists 
you could basically replace all their videos. You could just interswap mm -hmm. everything. It feels very the same shit swapped out. They actually make choices, right? Like choices that like shooting on film mm -hmm. or, or having it be one take or whatever, right? It's like, I think when people are more mature artists, they're more confident with their choices and they really yeah. stick to them. Yeah. Like those messages in, in This Is America, that was really powerful. Yeah, and I, I didn't see any of that while we were filming. Yeah. And then we put it together. So talking about the process <clears throat> of This Is America, which I thought was a cool idea, was they wanted to shoot on film because they wanted the look of film and they wanted right. the grain structure of film. But then I don't know if it was Larkin or Hero that came up with the idea, like mm -hmm. let we have so much rehearsing to do. Mm -hmm. Let's rehearse the shot um with a video camera so i think it was an alexa right with donald we'll get his movement down and the camera movement down and then we'll keep adding stuff to the background you know and then as we're filming i'm like oh they're just like adding all this random shit to the background like this <laughs> like give me a horse yeah because <laughs> exactly. yeah. <laughs> how many music videos have you seen or worked on where it's like you just add weird stuff because it's weird <laughs> and that's like that's what music videos are they don't right. make sense you just put weird cool looking stuff in the music video i'm like oh that's what we're doing again they're like sort of different for hero and donald to do something that doesn't have any sense but whatever i'm gonna i'm gonna go light the next set while they're filming this one and so they would rehearse on video mm -hmm. and keep adding on layers and layers to the background and then finally when we were ready they'd switch to the film camera and shoot actually on film wow yeah that's you, smart yeah that's a unique process yeah and when they had the treatment how detailed was it when you when they showed it to you, not detailed at all. <clears throat> was it just like he's gonna be dancing in a warehouse and there'll be stuff in the background, or was it like yeah, at I, two minutes we go to church scene and he shoots the church people? I, and... I think that one wasn't because Hero uses like Evernotes, um, which I think is an app on on his phone, one of those note taking software where we can add notes in there and then we can log on and like see the the live notes as he's putting them on there. Okay, with like references. And What's stuff. it called? Evernote. Evernote. Can you write that down? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so I know a lot of the treatments we've done with him are, and you just go to the Evernote link that he, he sends out. And that way it's just like live being updated. Yeah. yeah it's like a, like a Google doc basically. Yeah. I use yeah. Uh, like Microsoft OneNote, similar, similar idea. That's like what I like to scout with and yeah. just getting ideas organized in folders and stuff. And when you guys did, um, so I know I'm bouncing around a lot oh. my attention's everywhere. Uh, when you did everything everywhere all at mm -hmm. once, what is the process of decision-making for lighting and for cinematography there? Because a movie has to really hold a consistency mm -hmm. all the way through. It's not just, does it look good? It's, does it serve the story, right? So how is that meeting process like at the beginning of that? Do we say, hey, no handhelds here? Like to what degree are they making decisions intentfully about the movie before they shoot it? Uh, the Daniels are very, very organized. Uh, which if you're making a movie like everything everywhere all at once, you have to be Yeah. like such a confusing script. I think I read this script five times and I was like, I get it. But like, I, I would make a list of all the different multiverses and all the different characters just to keep myself organized. But there were so many parts that I, I had no idea where we were or what we were shooting. Right. <laughs> like, Cause you don't shoot universe. in order, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the first step always is the director working with the DP to just discuss the different themes and their different processes that they're going to use. Um, and I know a big part of that was each multiverse having a different look. A different cinematography style. Exactly. Written down on paper somewhere. Yeah. This one's only long lenses. This one warm. This Larkin one cold. used different sets of lenses for each multiverse. Oh, so there are tons glass. of yeah, there are tons of lenses on that. 
Oh, that's so the dope. ACs were always like, okay, what what lens do you want now? What lens set? <laughs> you know. So it got so complicated. So that was one of the visual ideas that they had there. So once the director and the DP have that idea, it's me scouting with the DP and figuring out like, okay, this right. set is this multiverse. This is the look we're going for. And I'd be like, all right, well, in, in the atrium, if you've seen the movie, mm -hmm. which is where like the final fight happens. Um, which you see the, the bagel? Yeah. Okay. So that's the atrium set. A big part of that was like, we need to shoot all day. We were shooting in the winter, which means like you have eight hours of sunlight, right? Eight to 10 hours of sunlight, but we need to like shoot all day and make it look day in there. And we also need to shoot during the day and make it look night in there. So it's him sort of telling me those problems and being like, all right, let's find solutions. So then you have to find a way to get rid of all the natural light and then add your own and be yeah. able to take it off, put it on. In that case, it was, uh, if you go to my Instagram, I made like a whole behind the scenes video about it. We, yeah, we'll put a link to it here. Yeah. Yeah. We made, uh, we used like your light tiles, which is like a tarp with okay. LEDs built on it. And it was like a hundred feet of LED that we put over the skylight. So it blocked out all the light. But it was also dimmable and somewhat color changeable so nice. that we could go between scenes quickly. Like LED strips, like the ones that people put in their bedroom? Yeah, kind of LED except strips. miles and miles and miles of it sewed into like a blanket almost. Wow. So that was like the perfect solution for what we needed there. I like that, that it wasn't just use a big light like a 12K or something. Yeah. It was like, no, let's make a custom solution that fits this location specifically. Mm -hmm. Is that something you like doing is figuring out the custom solution? Yeah, I, I think in, in any case, my job as a gaffer is to find solutions to what the DP and directors want to do. Right. Uh, and so for every that, every every problem that they bring up or every idea that they have, it's like, well, we have the budget that we need to work in. We have a time frame we need to work in. Um, and how do we deliver that idea with picking a product um, and then coming up with a game plan on how to install that on time and then right and they have to tell you also like the fact that we also need to make it look like night and day and day consistently they need to tell you not just mm -hmm. the look but how many different looks you need for that day and exactly. then you have to backwards engineer what's the right solution mm -hmm. how do you prep it how you schedule it how does that fit in the overall schedule yeah. yeah and a movie like that like we're jumping between multiverses which right. have different looks summer day summer night and we might shoot eight multiverses <laughs> in one day you know, with yeah. there's costume changes and everything. So a big part of like what we do is nowadays is everything is through the lighting console so that if they're like, all right, we're going to this scene right here, like push of the button, every light changes color, dims, and we have a completely different look. Is, and by lighting console, you mean you run like DMX cables from the lights onto a thing yeah. and then you have it on a computer, like it, you're doing a concert, like in a... Yeah, exactly. Same exact software and hardware as I use when I do big concerts we use when we do big movies and these days it's not even much dmx it's all ethernet we're building giant lighting control ethernet networks on a location every single day you know that's amazing it's like my electricians which we don't even call them anymore they're set lighting technicians they are like network engine part network engineers it's a whole other skill set yeah. because the lights are smart lights now it's not exactly. just tungsten hot lights it's mostly leds all leds for me yeah yeah and it's funny, like when I was working on The Departed, it's like giant cable, tons of generators, massive lights. The lights have a switch and that all it does is it turns on. Right. On Nowadays, yeah. the cables are tiny. Yeah. And the lights are more expensive. Yeah. You know, than the big old ones. 
uh, but they have little computers in them that are controlled by the big computers and big processors. And it's my job to make sure like that network is up and running. And then, you know, the most important person on my lighting crew these days is the lighting programmer. Wow. Cause after I have everything installed, a lot of times the DP is working with that lighting programmer and, you know, controlling thousands of lights, if not hundreds of thousands of lights. Without having to run to the back of the light and hit the little knob thingy. Exactly. It's just like, Hey, give me less headlight or whatever. And boom, yeah. boom. And they're just adjusting it. That's awesome. Is there a program that does storyboarding for you? Um, I don't really get into storyboarding, but I use, uh, I do a lot of drafting. Yeah. So AutoCAD type stuff. Um, the program I use is Vectorworks. So uh, I don't think on everything ever at once I had much time because that was like such a shortened schedule. But yeah. on all the other projects, I have the set and it's in 3D in a 3D model. And then I'll put all the Who lights in that to it. you? Um, a lot of times the art department will give it to me as okay. a 3d model cause they'll design it. Um, on smaller jobs, I'll maybe have to draw it myself after a fact, if it's a location, I might have to draw it myself in 3d. And is this for you to map out? Like this is physically how big the room is. Mm -hmm. Will this big piece of light even fit in there? That kind of exactly. stuff to test the, like I'm placing lights in the set, like to the inch, make sure everything fits properly. Wasn't there a program made for cinematographers to like test lighting that actually had lights built into it that had like yeah. an airy light and uh, a Kino light? You can actually say, imagine this light here. Yeah. Sin, uh, Wasn't it like Matt Workman's thing? Yeah, Matt Workman's thing. Yeah. Cinematography DB. I forget the name of it. But the software that I use not only needs to be for me to like visualize the lighting. Right. But I also need to be able to hand that off to my technicians to be like, build this. Got it. So it needs to be realistic, real world values of where the light is going, what light it is, how the cable is getting there, how are we controlling the light? Yeah. Um, so a I'll, lot of prep work of the logistics. Yeah. So I'll have a 3D model that I can walk through with the DP be like, oh, this is what I'm planning on. And then from there, I can export that file, give it to my rigging gaffer and the rigging gaffer can use that same file to print out plots to then hand off to set lighting technicians to start building hundreds if not thousands of lights into the set you know that's amazing to the inch projects dimensions. that have proper pre-production <laughs> it's a whole different world than showing up uh two days after you get called like where are we putting everything yeah and what's also cool when i do like lighting design jobs they always want previs right so uh i did a, a television series last year called daisy jones and the six which is based after a, a book called daisy jones and the six okay so i got hired to do all the concert scenes and like when we show up, we're going to want to start filming those concert scenes right. Like right away. We want to bring you on to previs everything for us so that we can make all of our creative choices about color and tempo and all that beforehand. Yeah. So from that same drafting software, I can export from there into Grandomate 3D, which is the lighting console that we use. Also, those programs talk to each other. Yeah, they talk to each other and we can program the whole set in 3D. And then I'll send them the video back. Like, oh, here's this song. What do you think? And they're like, oh, for the verse, let's change the chorus to this. And we get all the programming done in advance. Yeah. And then we show up on set and like, boom, we're ready to shoot. All the creative decisions have been made in advance. Yeah. And uh, luckily I've been on jobs that realize that that's what they need because, you know, shooting is the most expensive thing that you could do. So right. anything you could take away from the time needed to shoot is worth the experience. We have a huge set like that, tons of people. Yeah. yeah. Every hour you're paying tens or hundreds of people yeah. for that hour. Especially yeah. concert scenes, you're gonna have right. two, three hundred extras. Right, right. You know? It's funny because when people think of like, oh yeah, I wanna do lighting, they think it's gonna feel one way, but the way you're describing it, it's a lot more of like a tech. Yeah. 
when the bigger stuff Position, I do, yeah. the more of a manager I am. Like, yeah. I'm just managing the lighting ship, you know, a crew of 50 people to uh, get this set installed on time. And the actual creative part, does that take up a lot of time? Like, how, what is the vibe? Are we backlighting this? Are we front lighting this? Or are we as a far side key? Like, those decisions, does that take up less time now? That's just a. Um, no, I think like there's the always what? a time of deciphering what the DP wants. Right. Or if they don't know what they want, helping them discover what the image is. Right. And that's done before all of that process that I have there. So on commercials, that's happening on the scout. Right. You know, like we're sitting here, like, are we feeling the sunlight coming in through the window or do you want to feel like this is lit from the interior? Right. Uh, are we making this to look like slick and glossy or do we want this to look natural? So it's sort of asking questions like that to feel out their vibe. Yeah. And then from there, translating that to this light goes here and I need five people for this day to install right. equipment in that. But it all stems from talking with the DP of you know creatively what do they what do they want out of this set how is this supposed to look and then of course the logistics side of it well we only have one hour to load in like, oh well <laughs> that changes a lot yeah, yeah like <laughs> this is your creative idea but sorry it's not gonna happen <laughs> right you know? right right it's almost like a there's a list of primary questions Razzy, it's okay buddy it's like there's a list of questions that need to be answered in the mm -hmm. right order to how it works on a project is there a formal place anywhere that has the questions in order Cause like whenever I do a music video or commercial, yeah. I just find out as much as I can, however I can. Right? Sometimes we we have the whole story. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just have the location. Then we build around that. But I was wondering if, if they're just like, okay, if you, any project you're doing, answer this question first, and then that question, and it, that it properly scales all the way down. I mean, with anything that's artistic, it's hard to like put into a neat flow chart like that. Yeah, it's like figure out the vibe. I think image references help a lot mm. uh, on commercials a lot you'll get references from the agency be like here's this and this and this that we want and i feel for like two years everything was like euphoria yeah <laughs> like, oh, make it look like this like okay magenta and, and blue sure yeah yeah uh, so it's i think that's a, an easy way to like not have to ask a million questions like show me some similar stuff of what we're going for that when you did the movies helps. did they did they have a lot of references like that like scenes from other movies yeah to make it look and feel like this exactly like this multiverse has this feel this multiverse has this feel and is there an actual literal list somewhere that says for this part of the movie no handheld or for this part of the movie like those kind of decisions mm -hmm. is that actually written on a plan somewhere or is it just a day of, he's like, mm, you know what, let's go steady cam. Like when you're working on something that big, how much of that is decided? I think big creative decisions like that are usually made in advance. Okay. Um, especially like the handheld look or right. everything ever at once, which lens sets go for which multiverses. Right. That's definitely a thing to think of advance. Yeah. Um, and so there's like, my job I sort of see is like get as many lights in the places <laughs> in the correct places as possible. Right. Put it on the lighting as the budget allows. That's always the constricting thing. Right. Put it on the lighting console. That way on the day after the lights are installed, we did blocking, everything's focused. DP can go to the programmer and like they're painting with light instantly. They can easily turn things on and off and it's exactly. not a big Yeah, right. So you want to have options as close to the what you know as possible. Yeah. When people do set looks do they just have like top lights in all four corners and just choose which one to turn on? 
like for the key lights when people are doing on set um when it's all overhead it, i think it, it varies yeah. uh there's definitely some sets it's like we're gonna be looking all directions right and we don't want to have to like be hanging new lights um so it's like yeah hang as much up there as you can and these days a lot i'm using moving lights which are like a thing we just used to use in rock and roll concerts well like the pointers and years. the sharpies yeah. now we can remotely focus them and like have it just bounce off the back there like right above the frame to give me a backlight and shutter cut it right into there oh i see so you could just have almost like bounce cards set up and then one light that just either points to that bounce exactly. card or points to that one and we don't need to oh. send people up in lifts to focus lights because it's a bunch of moving lights up there we can remotely focus it all from the lighting console so that's, that's a so trick a lot of people are using now and it's funny like i i've worked in concerts and yeah i've worked in so many different parts of the lighting industry yeah and i try to take ideas from other industries and apply them to film and then film i'll bring to other ideas like i did a concert uh where i put like a softbox over the whole stage yeah and, and you like, never see that on concerts yeah, yeah. someone's touring <laughs> right now with the giant soft boxes that go in and out yeah who it is might be kendrick is it i'm not sure it kind of looks like a square yeah. yeah 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 which is like that's yeah. a film light brought to a concert yeah and then for years we've been taking concert lighting and bring it to film yeah. so i think like the years that i was jumping all around i learned so much from other industries and bringing that into film and music videos and stuff because sometimes people could just get bougie about their their department and say no this is just film lighting we don't like yeah. that stage lighting it's like no it, it's lighting it could, like you use the led strips for the one right it's whatever yeah. works yeah, so many people are like, oh, you use rock and rock and roll lights? I'm like, <laughs> they're called moving lights. Like, yeah. we can remotely focus them without needing a person up there to on a scissor lift to focus it. It feels like the biggest difference between film and stage lighting is that in film, we use a lot of diffusion. In yeah. stage lights, usually, like, if there's a spotlight on the artist, it's not diffused. It's just hitting them straight on. You, yeah, it can't be. It the might light be needs dimmed. to be 100 feet yeah, away. Right. You know? Yeah. Whereas when we do film, like, we'll start on that wide shot. We'll light them like we light theater almost yeah but then we'll go into close-up and like yeah we'll diffuse it we have that opportunity right that's why like in in the recreation of like theater on film like it's never that good when they just film a theater play right like this doesn't feel cinematic because it's, stage lighting we just throw a camera on it it feels weird it's too harsh yeah it's like okay saucy. they have a close-up but like that's the shot's yeah. not meant for the close-up like there's just a long lens on it right whereas like movies that are musicals like i love because yeah. they actually shoot the musical yeah. with film lighting and then just happen to maybe be in a theater. Yeah. 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 It's so interesting, man. What do you want to do with all this? I don't know. Like at I'm, this uh, point I'm in the career. I, I still try to say like, oh, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do for a living. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's a project by project thing for me. Uh, I find a lot of creativity when I'm doing lighting design stuff for music. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy that a lot. But also that's like the most stressful thing for me to do. Music videos for sure. Yeah, not even music videos, but like concert scenes okay, or movies yeah. like Daisy Jones and the Six or like Transparent. I did season five, like I did the musicals for that. It's Dope. like as a lighting designer, you have all this weight on you because like you're the one making the image and you're the right. one making the creative decisions. Uh, but then as a gaffer, it's like I still have a ton of weight on me when I'm like managing a huge department. Right. But I sort of lose part of the creative aspect of it to the DP making the decisions, which I'm fine with. Like I take lots of joy in delivering to someone exactly what they want. Right. Like, that makes me very happy to, at the end of the day, the DP being like, that came out awesome. 
Yeah, because you're actualizing something. They have exactly. a vision and you're literally making it happen, making it real. Yeah, so I think it's like a balance. Like I'll do a long movie as a gaffer mm -hmm. and they'll be like, all right, I'm done with this. Like I want to go do some more creative stuff for myself. Right. And I think as long as I have a balance, I'm happy. I don't want to be stuck just doing one thing over and over and over. How do you find balance with having a family? You have multiple kids. Mm -hmm. You skate. You work on movies. Yeah, I, uh, that's been the struggle of like the last thirteen years. Uh, like when uh, I started dating my wife, that had two kids. They were three and five. Yeah. And I was like, before then, I was doing movies in Louisiana. I'm gone for like three months. Like no one cares. Like I'm in Louisiana, staying in a hotel, whatever. Right, living single, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And then as soon as like I started caring for what are now my stepkids, we got married like a couple of years later. And then mm -hmm. I have a son of my own now who's nine years old. It's like your perspective changes. Like before then it was like work, work, work as much as you can. If you can fill seven days a week, like fill seven days a week, you know, stack that cash, yeah. you know, build your career. And then kids and wife come in and you're like, okay, like it's not just about work. Like, for me to be happy, I need to spend time with them. I don't want to miss these milestones of them growing up. Right. Uh, and so that's always a struggle. And like, I enjoy working on movies, but that's not like my life goal to make all these amazing movies. Like my life goal is to be happy. And if I was just making movies, even if they were like the blockbuster movies, like every year yeah. and I'm in Atlanta for nine months out of the year, not seeing my family, not skating, not being able to run, like that's not going to make me happy. Like, cool. The movie came out. It's highest grossing movie right. ever. I'd be like, well, that's awesome. But it's like I'm incomplete success because yeah. success isn't just finances. But I think that a lot of people don't have finances or career achievement that it feels like when we say success, that that's the biggest thing because that's the biggest thing that's missing. But to me, if I'm super successful, yeah, and I don't have time for love or friends or family, it's then it's incomplete. Then mm -hmm. I'm really just over overvaluing one thing, right? But there's also phases in life. Like, you know, when you're young and you don't have a family and if you can stack up mm -hmm. and work more, do it. Yeah. So that when you do have a family, you can take that time off, right? But it's not just doing more work mm -hmm. right because i get fulfillment from doing work but like i picked up surfing recently like i want to be able to continue doing that i want to be able to continue skating right it, it's having a sense of freedom to create what i want when i want like you said picking the jobs mm -hmm. that to me feels more like success than if i just had something that paid me twice as much but took away a lot of my freedoms yeah and that's the struggle that i have now like i get joy from creating art and movies and tv right uh but movies and TV are a drag. It's long hours. I barely get to see my family. So the other thing is making commercials. Like I get joy in making commercials in that I like solving problems and I make, you know, if it's a good commercial, I'm proud of it. Right. But at a certain point, you're just like hawking an item for some corporation so shareholders can make more money, you know? Right, right. And so like that doesn't make me happy. I don't get as much creative uh fulfillment from filming from making commercials but commercials deliver me the lifestyle that i enjoy they pay well they're quick yeah i can work two three days a week and spend four days with my family and while they're at school i can go skating or go running or hike in a mountain right uh so that's like the struggle of well let's just always do commercials that way we deliver 
the lifestyle that we want and we're happy. But then I also, then you feel bad, like, oh, I'm not making any good movies. Like I'm right. super it takes proud. takes away that juice. Yeah. Like I'm super proud of ma helping make everything everywhere all at once. Yeah. And like next year I'm doing a movie that I'll probably be super proud of too. Yeah. But it's like, I'm sorry, family. Like you're going to take a hit while I'm taking this sort of selfish thing of working on a movie which it somewhat is you're not home for 14 hours you know yeah it's tough it's a struggle it's a big commitment industry yeah yeah like and set days are that's the full day and that's why you see yeah. so many people have worked with are divorced you know they don't have a good relationship with their kids because to them it's just like work 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 or stack those movies or stack those tv shows back to back to back Man, it's like that might that and I say nothing mm. against that because they mm. that might be what gives them joy, but it's not what gives me joy. You know, having a balance between my hobbies, my family and work is what gives me joy. That's what I, I think I've been trying to figure out the last few years. What about the other successful people that you've worked with? Do they seem not calling people out, but do they seem to have a balance? Some do and some don't, you know, is there a correlation with the ones that have less balance and more successful? Always or no? Like, is it a direct trade-off? Like, either be super successful or be balanced? Or there are people that are, like, killing it but also spending time with their kids? I think there's a little bit of both. There's definitely those people that all they do is work. Right. They never see their kids. And, like, they make great stuff. And I, I think, like, if you're the type of person that wants to be at the top, like, no matter what, you're putting a sacrifice to your family and your personal hobbies. To some degree, yeah. Yeah. You can't be Michael Jordan with uh, too many days off. Yeah. Exactly. Like, look at, like, the news <laughs> of Tom Brady right now. Yeah. You know, like, his supposedly Giselle's saying that he's not spending enough time, but he wants to be the greatest of all time. Like, you're not going to be the greatest of all time if you're spending eight hours a day with your family and you want to be a football star. Like, yeah, it's tough. It's a thing yeah, you have to swallow, but. It's like you can, you could have anything, but not everything. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the bigger obstacle or the bigger vision that we have, we have to make a choice. What are we willing to pay for it? Right. Like, you know, when I wanted to move to L.A., I was willing to live on a couch or mm -hmm. like not have a lot. Of, like I was willing to sacrifice that for the promise of it's going to work out. Right. Yeah. Like you said, if you want to be the best of all time, you might not have a lot of family time. So maybe the question is, what is it do I want? How much do I really want it? What am I willing to pay for it? Right. Mm -hmm. What is the sacrifice? But on every side. Right. Because if I value waking up at noon every day, then then that overrides a lot of other values. Right. So it's like what's actually more important to me, you know, and and that's a, a ever changing question. Yeah. You know, because I feel like you like I go through ebbs and flows where there's times where I just want to live life and absorb. And then there's times where I'm like, no, no, I'm like, I can't rest until I get the work done because I yeah. have ideas coming through me. And it's like they have to be created. They have to be manifested and it does feel good to create, mm -hmm. right? Cause I think work to me, isn't bad thing. It's not a bad word. Like, oh, work, you know, it's just, do, am I treating it like I have to, or I get to, and how yeah. is it balancing everything out? You know, I've definitely done projects that I didn't enjoy where I thought the vibe was weird, mm -hmm. you know, or it was stressful or oh, whatever, yeah. you know, and yep. then I was just... You just think of like paycheck, paycheck, paycheck. <laughs> yeah, and then you just start focusing on that. And then when you start doing that, you're like, well, that it's not even paying enough for the much bullshit as I'm yeah. taking here, you know? Yeah, it's interesting, man. I love that the world of creators is expanding now. Oh, yeah. Right? That like, 
it's saturating the market, but also it's op opening up more opportunities, mm -hmm. right? Because I think everybody needs content. Every company needs content. Like there's more companies now that are going to need to hire cinematographers oh, yeah. than ever before. Yeah. You know, and there's different ways to monetize it. We were talking the other day, right, mm -hmm. about Instagram Reels yeah. and YouTube and all that. I've always had this rift between <clears throat> my ambitious of being a cinematic creator, uh -huh. making stuff that looks filmically pretty, and making stuff that succeeds, makes money, and is good on social media. And I always have this argument in my head about like, yeah, well, this would look way better creatively, but this works better on social media. Right. Yeah. And now I'm trying to find a way to blend those as much as possible, make things work on social media while making them look really good, you know, trying to bring that aesthetic to it. Because like for a while there, I didn't even want to build up my own YouTube channel because I thought that that would be against the goal of wanting to be a, a bigger director or cinematographer, creator or whatever. You know, mm -hmm. they're like, oh, then I'll be labeled as a YouTube guy or whatever the fuck. Right. And I think that like stopped me from building my own brand. I was always building other people's brands. Like yeah. I built so many other channels that have done so well, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of subscribers, and I can never build my own. And now I'm sitting around, I'm like, well, I got all this gear. So now I'm inspired to, to while I'm long-term building to do like narratives and that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. the stuff that I make for myself, like even this, like trying to light a podcast better than podcasts are typically normally lit yeah. you know Try, trying to put more i'll give you compliments it. on that from a lighting guy yeah it's go. <laughs> good you know because i think as a kid i had this dream of like being commercial director music video director but yeah. that's just because those were the examples that were in front of me i think what i wanted to do was create yeah. i wanted to make stuff that... you you want to make stuff that people want to watch that's yes like the ultimate thing for any creator is mm -hmm. that more people want to watch your stuff they want to see it yes and they want to be like Brazil, that was really cool. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, that's like, such a great that's feeling the when you get that compliment. For anyone, right? Yes. And it's like, does it have to be the exact job that I thought of as a kid? Mm -hmm. Doesn't have to be that exact kind of thing. Sure, I, I'll still do commercials and music videos, but I'm expanding my mind now to have it be not just that, right? Because there's also other ways to monetize, right? Mm -hmm. I might be able to make, you know, my own short film, you know, or whatever, and just put it out on YouTube and just yeah. start building from there. Like it's I used to dream of having good cameras and now we're using a red to shoot a podcast, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's trippy how much has this changed in the opportunities. Like, Oh, our skate. I look back at our old skate videos from like 98. They look so bad on those cameras. Yeah. Now, like kids these days, they can shoot with just an iPhone. It looks 20 times better than our $4,000 camera. Yeah. Was it VX2000? Yeah. The GL1, like GL2. Yeah. I was all about looks that. so much better than we shot those skate videos. Yeah. Like. It's trippy, man. They even have like the fake depth of field in like the <laughs> cinematic mode, you know? Yeah, and you can change it later in the post focusing. Yeah. I don't know if you ever had to get those um what was it when the the first camera that shot on P2, the HVX1? I did I had the HVX200, yeah. And then you put the cinema lens on top of it. Did you ever use that? Yeah, with the with the Red Rock uh Pro Mic 35 adapter. Pro 35 adapter. Yeah. It was like an extra long thing and then you put a lens on it. Yeah. Just so you could get less depth of field yeah. and like make it look more professional. I remember getting that. It was so horrible. Yeah, it was like such a workaround and it <laughs> looks so dusty. Yeah. And now we can just get that on basic cameras. Yeah, you can get that on your iPhone. And we still find the way to complain. <laughs> yeah you know it's it's brazzy hey Hi. you excited buddy he's like yeah i want to be a part of this but i mean i'm glad that the technology has come around at the same point that huge need for content has come around yeah like at least there wasn't a huge need of content back in 98 right when we were all shooting on <laughs> vx 1000s right something. mini dv tapes and yeah. all that 
What was the first camera you used? Some consumer thing. I, I mean, the first first one was like the ones my parents filmed my birthdays on. You know, it was like we called over it the, the shoulder. We called it the bazooka. Yes, <laughs> like, yes. We'd go into skate parks. The thing would be in a case, and the skate park owner would be, be like, "You look like a mafia person bringing in like a case of money or dead body <laughs> parts or something." And you'd unlock the thing, and it'd be this giant bazooka. Like you couldn't do follows with it. Yeah, you're like you're. It's a thirty-pound camera. You're not gonna drop in behind your friend with that camera. That's the first one I started with too. I used to get it from Rent a Center. Oh, it was yeah. this place where you used to just rent cameras from, <laughs> and um, and I remember before I knew what editing was, I thought I invented it by hooking up two VCRs and a PlayStation because it uh -huh. had the RCA cords for the with the red, white, and yellow cords. Yeah, and I would record clips from TV on one, play it on the other, and put a, a music CD on my PlayStation. And route it in to like and like do press record play stop and in my mind I was like I invented editing <laughs> yeah and then eventually I got um Adobe Premiere I remember I had Premiere 6.0 like back yeah. in the day I think I had Media Master Pro I don't even know what that what company made that that was what I edited on it was a little box that was was it FireWire or like printer cable yeah to RCA yeah and I'd plug in the video camera to the RCA and play the record. You know, you'd like press play and then record on the hard drive. At the same time. Oh, yeah. yeah to record the clip onto the drive. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. I remember the first thing that inspired me to start editing. It was a trailer for a skate video called Urban Royalty. Do you remember this I one? I remember that one. Yeah. It was, you know, the Be Unique guys? Yeah. It was their first guys. video before 1131. They made mm -hmm. one that was like a like an old little mixtape video. But just the way they edited it, they used them um, before it was played out, the Requiem for a Dream soundtrack that oh, one of my da, favorite movies da, ever. Da, da, da. yeah that's why i haven't seen the movie i only have only heard the soundtrack i mean it was one of the movies that like got me into want to work in cinematography definitely oh that's hilarious yeah, yeah. the song from it, it yeah, made the trailer so that good. i liked so good i need to watch that requiem for a dream i remember just the way that they did the editing and the coloring they made skating look so cinematic yeah and i was like wow they made this thing that i liked look like bigger than life and i was like okay it's possible to edit things that cool mm-hmm I remember I used to um, download like the Matrix trailer and put it into Premiere and make cuts where all their cuts went <laughs> and then replace it with like my clips, you know, just so I have the same edit. So I would see what it feels like to make a well-balanced, like yeah. exciting edit, you know, I love it. I love the entire world of creating, man. I think skating was like a great setup for that, too. Yeah. Like before we were recording, we we're talking about like skating. You have no coach. Yeah. Like you're making your own path on what you want to skate. How are you going to film it? And then if you're trying to get sponsors, like how do you advertise out to these companies? Yeah. And so it totally makes independent people. That's why I think so many people that I work with now came from skating. Like a good friend of mine, Connor O'Brien. Yeah. Made skate films back in the day. Now he's a camera operator. Uh, you, of yeah. course. and uh, Vinny. A bunch of people. Yeah. Yeah, Richard makes his yeah. own stuff. And I think it, it got a lot of people into film, but also there's a lot of people that like started their own businesses too mm -hmm. outside of the skate industry. Yeah, because it, it was teaches... making content before YouTube, right? Mm -hmm. Like skate videos was just you film your friends doing tricks and you press up VHS tapes, you send it to sponsors. It's... Yeah, sponsor me tapes. Yeah. <laughs> Remember those? Yeah. I love it. I'm very grateful for it. I think philosophically it put me in the right mindset to do this right because i got to travel a bunch i got to meet such a variety of mm -hmm. people be out and about in the streets find beauty in random places we were talking before about skate spots right 
about how a regular person might see an alleyway and think it's ugly, but we might see it as like, oh, this would be a great scene for a movie or, or <laughs> yeah. a great spot, spot to skate. I think that philosophy is to find the value, mm-hmm. right? Like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's like expanding on that. Like something is only as useful as you make it, right? Like many things can have so many uses. I remember there were some magazine articles and skate, skate magazines that were about like, um, you know, like these art sculptures that are all around the city. Mm-hmm. And how we always get kicked out of like skating all these spots. Right. And then the writer was saying like, well, we're using the art. Everyone else isn't even using it. Like they're just staring at it. Like we're trying to skate it and on these sculptures. Yeah, like, that's a great point. We're adding to the art. Like why are they kicking us out and we're filming it? I thought it, I thought that was like a cool idea. Yeah. What everyone else just stares at, like we actually try to find a way to ride it. Yeah. There's a big Picasso one in downtown Chicago that just has a ramp that goes off of it. People used to do it and launch out. That's a great point. Cause then you're actually, you're actually interacting with it. And even if you leave little skate marks on it, technically it's just adding character and texture. Yeah. You know, whenever you find something awesome from back in the day, it's the imperfections that make it cool. Like if you were to see like a, the declaration of independence, it looks rusty. It's not perfectly clean white paper. It's yeah. got like, it looks old as fuck. It, it, it's distinguished. It has this like the, the little cuts on the paper or whatever. That That's yeah. part of what makes it great. The one downside is we wax it and then. Yeah. <laughs> you <know that> <laughs> Sometimes you have to. Yeah. Were your parents supportive of you doing creativity and filmmaking and all that? Um, Not really. But like my parents were, they weren't against it. Mm. But I was always so into computers, which I think came from editing skate videos you also learn like there were no good computers and like you had to i built my own computers for editing right and so i think they they saw me getting into um computer stuff and my mom's like you should really go to college for that like how are you gonna make money and go into film school and of course i didn't listen to her right and then after like when i'm in college and i joined the union i'm like already making money she's like all right maybe this will work out <laughs> maybe my son like won't move back in with me till he's 35 years old yeah i bet if you were grinding and already joining a union at an early age i'm sure that gave her a, a vote of confidence yeah yeah but that's the joke i always say i'm like oh mom I'm like you still think i should go into computers <laughs> do you if your kid told you i want to be a professional instagrammer what would you say uh yeah why not if they're taking it seriously, if that means like posting selfies all the time, then <laughs> like, yeah. but no, I, I, I'm hoping my kids find something that they find interest in professionally. Yeah. Right now they don't, uh, daughter's in UCLA. She's, uh, there for psychology, which she's an amazing student. She's a go-getter. Definitely. Right. My 16 year old, he's the one that he needs some guidance. He has college in two years. He's a sophomore. He's a junior now. Uh, I'm hoping for him that he finds something that gives him joy that he wants to go to professionally. He hasn't really found that yet. Do you feel like as a parent, you would prioritize if he told you what he wanted to do, what's more important to you, the joy or the potential for it to make money? I think you need both because even if you're like super happy doing your job, but you're not making money, like in the end, you're not going to be like, if you don't have money, you're not going to be happy. Like, I'm not saying that money makes you happy, but not but, having money, but not having enough money will make you not happy for <laughs> <Yeah>. sure. You know, <laughs> especially if like you yeah. got nowhere to live and no car or anything. Uh, so, I mean, I support whatever they want to do. Um, and I think in anything you can make money. Yeah. You know, there, there's no job out there that you can't find a, a role that 
can give you a good living even here in Los Angeles, which is expensive. Yeah, facts. The people that you work with on your crew, uh, do you have any young people and how is their attitude? Have you had any generational issues of if there's like a 20 year old gaffer or, or a grip or something on your team? Mm -hmm. Have you felt the difference there in like work ethic? Um, I mean, I, I would only hire people that I know have the work ethic okay. to do the job. Um, and actually like a lot of them have reached out to me on Instagram being like, Hey, I really like your work. I just moved to Los Angeles. I'm 21 years old. Like I'll hit them up. Like if it's a non-union job, whichever you want to do, or, uh, I can hire non-union, like right. I've put them on jobs and I've got people's careers started that way. And I, I have a lot of times I have like really young people on my crew. And you found them to be proactive and everything. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, you you have to be if you're working in film. You can't be lazy. Yeah. And I mean, if you're like already established, then maybe you can maybe get away with it. But like, <laughs> if you're looking to get jobs, you have to be. So if somebody's like an up and coming filmmaker and they're about to move to LA, mm -hmm. what would be some steps that you would recommend them to take? I think it depends a lot on what position you're going for. Let's say if they're going for cinematography or lighting, like not directing. Um, what I always say for people that want to be a cinematographer is f try to find good directors. And if I'm, I'm a big proponent of film school, not what mm. I talked about with that, you're going to learn everything you need in the classes, but you're going to meet people mm. and you're all starting out at the same point. And for me, it was all of us moving to Los Angeles at the same point. It's like, well, are you doing anything this weekend? No, it's like, let's go shoot a short film. So it's like a great place to meet people. Film school is not the only place for that. There's lots of places right. for that. Uh, but it's, if you want to start as a DP, finding directors that you believe in that are doing that can write possibly and, or have like a good eye and are enjoyable to work with and are going to go places like shoot whatever you can for them and like work for free if you have to. Yeah. And then, I mean, it, it is hard as a DP, like you're going to have to work for free to shoot projects that are worthwhile. And even if you're offered like a few hundred dollars a day to shoot, like maybe that money's better spent renting lighting or hiring a gaffer that's gonna help you out. Yeah. Like I know some of the DPs that are doing well these days, like they put all of their rate into rentals mm -hmm. so that they can make this look good to keep them going. To make the resume go up. Yeah, to make yeah. the video look better. Yeah. Um, so I think it's hard as a DP because you, you should like you're probably gonna have to work for free to get that, but you also need to make a living to afford a apartment and stuff and it, i think it is about like being as frugal as you can in your personal life yeah so that you're taking jobs that are going to help you on a career path you're not taking jobs just to make that just to make money um and that is a very difficult thing right so what i see a lot of people do is they will work as a dp on jobs that they believe in and then work as like a camera assistant or electrician or grip on other stuff just to make that money and they'd probably get good experience too from learning exactly. about other sets not learned, every job you get is going to be you at the top position i learned so much working as an electrician under other people yeah like if you sit there and you pay attention on set like it is a wealth of knowledge of what to do and especially what not to do you know yeah but I, I, I mean, like I talked about the departed, like working under Michael Ballhouse, like just seeing how he lights sets, like there's no film school that's going to teach you that. And it's ideas that you'll maybe never come up with in your head. That's beautiful. So not only is it you're working on jobs that are paying your rent, but you're also 
probably working on jobs that are much bigger than you're going to be the DP yourself on. Right. And so it's a great learning opportunity. But then like don't take full time on a movie as a grip electrician or PA, like be the day player so you can go in and out. Right. So that when this director has a two day music video and they want to shoot, you can leave to go shoot that music video. That's important. Like you don't want to piss anybody off by leaving a project. Like you want to say up front, I'm trying to be a DP and I, every day I want, every day I can work, I'll work as an electrician on your movie. And that's what I try to do now. Like I have a few people that work as my best boy or as set lighting technicians uh, with my crew. And they're like, Hey, I want to be a gaffer. And I'm like, cool. Like, can you do this two day job? And then we'll do this two day job. And, or like uh, last year I did a TV show that was 105 days of shooting. Wow. And like, I told the crew, like, take off whatever days you need to go work as a gaffer or whatever. Like I'm completely fine with that. Like that's, that's what I did for many years before I became just a gaffer and lighting. And it's important for them to communicate with their boss, right? Yeah. That, like what's going on, like be upfront about what their dreams are. Mm -hmm. Because for all they know, you could recommend them to a different project where they could be closer to becoming a gaffer. Because yeah. if, if somebody secretly wants to be a writer, but they don't tell anybody, then yeah. nobody can help them. Plus too, when they tell me stuff like that, if we're down and they're sitting next to me, I'd be like, I put this light here because of this. I put that light there because of that. Like I'm going to explain to them what we're doing. Yeah. Because who knows in five years, maybe no one wants to hire me as a gaffer. Right. Maybe I'm like that old dude be like, oh no, cinematography's mm. moved on. We're not yeah. like, I'm going to work for them. You know? Yeah, exactly. And it just feels better to contribute too. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, if somebody can go to film school, great more so for the relationships and the Definitely. experience. But if they can't go to film school, then move to a city where film is popping and find, find that, the community. Yeah. Who, what are the people on the same field as you right now that have the passion and have the good eye to make good stuff? And, and just like hit said, them up. DM. Hold on to their tailcoats and do whatever you can for them. Yeah. But then work on bigger stuff, making that money in a lower position. Yeah. You know? It's a nice balance. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, you really have to find a way to help. Right. Like it's not just, hey, give me a job, Matt. Right. It's. I want to work on your set. How, how can I help? I want to mm -hmm. contribute, right? If they show up finding ways to contribute and you feel confident that they're contributing, then mm -hmm. you'll feel confident referring them to the next person. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And show me the need that you want to learn. I'm, I'm anytime that's free on set, I'll teach anything to anyone. You Don't hit me up in the middle of a lighting setup. <laughs> right, like, right, right. When we're chilling and we're on take 20 and I'm freaking bored, you know, I would love to teach anyone they want anything they want to know. And what do you teach for uh, IATSE? So IATSE Local 728, I've been teaching the uh, Ethernet lighting classes. It's been like 12 years of me teaching them. So basically, how do you build a huge computer network to control hundreds, of, if not hundreds of thousands of lights, like some jobs I've done. That's amazing. Um, and you didn't have to get certified for that, that specifically? Um, I didn't have to. Um, but I did take a entertainment electrician exam back in like 2008. Okay. So I'm a ETCP certified electrician. And then after five years of teaching, I became a certified trainer. Yeah. Um, so I really just teach that very niche uh, aspect of lighting of how to build computer networks to control lighting. Do you think that's the future of lighting? Uh, it currently is. Yeah. Like it used to just be like power, power, power. Like you need to make sure that there's power everywhere so that you can plug mm -hmm. in any big light anywhere. Right. Nowadays, like that's still important to have power everywhere, but we don't use nearly as much power as we used to, but every light is a computer. So we need power everywhere and we need data control everywhere. 
running ethernet cable around set and like on top of this distro box that distributes 600 amps there's a network switch up there distributing ethernet and that would be important for people to to learn if they want to work on big projects mm -hmm. right and also understand even if that's not the exact job they're going to end up doing they might be working with somebody that has to do that yeah so it might be important to learn that so that they know how to communicate with that person or that mm -hmm. department yeah and it all goes back to like lighting consoles is the use of lighting consoles in film in the past 10, 15 years has completely changed how we shoot. Like it's so quiet on set uh, when, cause we're doing everything through the lighting console. We're wearing headsets right? and we're able to make like these huge creative decisions in like a split second. Right. And have presets. This is the daytime. This is the exactly. golden hour setup, whatever. You just click them. Bam, bam, bam. Yeah, yeah. I remember last year I did this scene for Gaslit, which was this stars TV show I did okay. with Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. And Julia Roberts is out on the back porch and it was a set that we built with a, a backing of ocean and all that, like a, a translate backing of that. And we did the blocking and we did the rehearsal. And then after the rehearsal, it was lit. Like it looked nice. It was like a nice sunny day. We made it look like. And then after watching like Julia's first rehearsal, we're like, wow, she's playing this like she is demolished mentally. So we made it like a very dark sunset look by completely changing all the colors and the dimmers in like two seconds. That's awesome. And now you watch that scene. I've got so many compliments from the look of that scene. And I'm like, that wasn't me. Like I hung the lights in the right places and I put lights that completely can color change. Yeah. And I gave the DP all the options and Larkin sat down with the programmer and like came up with this amazing look in a split second. To serve the story. Exactly. And then you watch that scene and like her face is very dark and she's looking down and there's like these purple colors behind her and it just adds so much more, which yeah. we didn't see until we saw her performance during the, the blocking in the first rehearsal. Yeah. And it's only because we have a lighting console and of course a programmer that knows how to use that lighting console properly that we can come up with like these really quick decisions that completely change the game. That back in the day would take a long time to switch yeah. out. And it all just that. wouldn't happen. Then it would be tons of gel and like, it would need to be completely pre-planned. And so many people are like, oh, nowadays, like filmmaking, like you don't need to plan it out. Everything's just done on the day. It's like, I do agree with that. Like now with emails and computers in our pockets, like it's not nearly as planned out, which I guess you- It doesn't have to be. Yeah, you could criticize that it's not as well planned as it used to be, but it also allows for more creative freedom on the day. Like right. if you go into a scene being like, this is exactly how we're going to shoot it. Like, yeah, you're one part of it, but the actors are another part of it. Like the way that they are performing is going to change the vibes of the scene. And that's right. what you need to go with. Right. So like if we have this concrete plan going in, we might not have the best way to tell the story. You have to still have room for improvisation. Yeah. And to assess, is this actually serving a story once you actually see everything? There's a movie you think you're making, a movie mm -hmm. you're actually making. Yeah. And the technology in this case is enabling that. It's finding these creative possibilities that maybe the DP would have found, but 10 years ago, we wouldn't be able to enact on it. Yeah. Like, they'll be like, all right, stop for five hours so we can relight the whole set. You're like, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Like, Julia's on set. She's not going to go back to her trailer. Right. Like, it's going to be done remotely from the console. Boom, done. All right, cool, let's shoot. Yeah, it's amazing. So much has changed. What's one of the biggest challenges you've had in your career? Um, picking which jobs to take and which not to take. 
And I think it's always trying to figure out like, where, where do I want to be? And it's like, Oh, I actually don't know what I really want to be. You know? Uh, but you know, why do you take a job or not take a job? Uh, is always a very difficult decision. Nowadays, like I discuss with my wife, I'd be like, hey, well, for example, like a job came in for this weekend. It's a mm -hmm. DP that I really want to work with, but yeah. like this weekend has five soccer games and it's like a, a non-union job, which I tend to like not do as much, but right. Uh, but mainly like uh, I talk to my wife, I'm like, well, she she's always very supportive of whatever I want to do, but she'll also give her opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, if I take the job over the weekend, she's not going to be mad at me. Right. But she's gonna be like, well, we do have five soccer games. Take it if you want to. I'd be like, well, I do want to work with this DP. She's like, well, then take it. I'm like, but I also know like how much stress it's going to put on you. So it's like trying to figure, trying to figure out that work life balance or even picking a job. If you have two jobs that want to book on the same time, like, well, which one's better for me? You know, like, oh, this one, I'm going to make more money. But like, this one's a very talented DP that I want to like continue working with. Right. And I so think that is the those hardest things part. Out. Yeah. Working freelance is very stressful in that you can make your own schedule, but you're also making the decisions as to which way your career is going. Yeah. I feel you. And I think when you have all that freedom, sometimes we forget that we're the ones in control. We can just get stuck in a pattern and then realize, mm -hmm. wait a minute, why am I working on the weekends? Right. Yeah. Cause it's like, I make my own hours and sometimes I complain about my hours. I'm like, who made them? <laughs> yeah. It's me. <laughs> it's like, Oh, I should just maybe just make a day off. Like there was a period where like there was several weeks where I didn't take any days off. And I was like, why? Like, it's not like somebody's telling me not to take them off. It's just me. I just get used to it. I don't right? have a deadline. Yeah. Yeah, especially when you're growing a business, it's like there's a never-ending amount of things to be done. Yeah. But then we have to ask ourselves, what is wealth, right? Is it just finances or is it also having quality time with the wife and the kids? Because mm -hmm. that's part of being wealthy too. Yeah, I think wealth is being happy. Yeah. And for me, I think I found what makes me happy. It's working jobs that I like, making enough money to do what I want to do, and then skating and running. You know, that's what makes me happy. Was there a period in your career where you were very unhappy? I think in the beginning you're you're frustrated, especially when like you have a little more experience in the jobs that you're working on. You're like, well, this is the way that it should be done. And you're like, well, it's... then you, then you when you actually get like way more experience, you're like, well, it wasn't done that way because they didn't have the money to do it that way. Right. And like these people, they weren't experienced. Right. So. I think that was super frustrating in the beginning being like, this is not where I want to be. These are not the type of people I want to be working with, but in all, in, in all, it's a learning experience. Right. Cause uh, you wanted to be further ahead or working on bigger projects. Yeah. And I think like when I first started as a gaffer, uh, I think that like translated to me yelling a little bit and being not as enjoyable to work with. Hmm. And I think when I met my, when I started dating my wife and like started to be a stepfather, yeah, like compassion kicked in a little more, which translated into work right? and realizing that like just work isn't a thing. And I think that really helped out my work and like remaining calm, not getting frustrated. And actually it was funny. I was DPing these yoga videos back then and the director, uh, my my girlfriend who is now my wife came to set one day and he's like, Matt is so much more happier now. 
<laughs> more enjoyable to work with. And I don't think I really realized that I had that transition until he said that to her. And she told me and I was like, oh, he's definitely right. Like I enjoy work more and he, you know, she does make me happier. And now that I'm way more experienced in, in life and in work, I realize at work when I'm frustrated at people that are working under me, I'm realizing 90% of the time it's because I didn't explain to them properly what I wanted, you know? Mm, yeah. You're like, why is this person doing <clears throat> this? And I'm like, oh yeah, I gave them like a two second explanation and it should have been like a minute. That's right. why they're doing it wrong. Like, don't get frustrated at them. It's not their fault. Yeah, that's something I'm working on too. As I'm finally having a bigger team, it's like I really need to clarify and verify mm -hmm. what is it that I'm asking for and set them up to win. Exactly. Instead of just being like, yeah, handle this thing and then just be mad that it's not done exactly right. Yeah, yeah. set them up to success. Yeah. That's like always a thing I tell. Like I, underneath me, I have like my best boy, my rigging gaffer, and then they're in charge of all those people. Yeah. And like our number one thing to do is not to micromanage, but to set everyone up for success. Right. Like everyone we hire is smart people. If we tell them the end goal in a little bit about how we want to get there, but they make like all the decisions along the way, they, like we're going to perform well. We're going to get it done faster and people are going to be happier at the end of the day yeah. because we didn't micromanage them and we use their intelligence. Like people want you to know how smart they are and to use what they're capable of. No one wants to be like, run this cable from here to here. This one plugs in here. This one's here. Be like, hey, this set's over here. The actor is going to be standing at this Then it's mark. not fulfilling for them. Right. If they're just doing exactly what they're told. Yeah. People want to Tell be them the to end use. goal. That's yeah. why like I, make the, I like to make lighting plots a lot. And I print out a lighting plot for every one of my crew. Be like, like, this is the vision. Exactly. We have two days to install this. Here are the things that are important to me. Here's a little bit of the method they want to do. Go at it. You know, and, and they're able to make their own decisions. And people enjoy that. And I think that's why people enjoy yeah. working for me. It's more creatively fulfilling for them. Yeah. Because ultimately, as a human being, it feels great to contribute. Yeah. Like a sense of self-worth, part of it comes from praise, but we want to feel like we earn the praise. Mm -hmm. We want to feel like, like you said that it feels good when you bring the, the DP's vision to life. Yeah. You like having them say, yes, man, that's what I wanted, right? It's It, it adds to that sense of self-worth, right? Because mm -hmm. that's what we're here to do. We're here to contribute to each other. It's just finding a way to contribute that's enjoyable. And as a boss, what's the most important thing for you to do? Hire smart, good people. Right. Like there's so many, like you were talking about earlier, like DP's that aren't good. Mm -hmm. But like they hire awesome gaffers, awesome <laughs> camera operators, awesome key grips. And that's why they're doing great. Yeah. Like that's the number one thing you could do as a manager is hire great people and let them do their great things. When I was um, doing my music videos at the beginning, I didn't have money for DPs. What I would do is I would just hire a steady cam app, a focus puller and a gaffer. Mm -hmm. And if I had that, I knew the camera was going to move right. It was going to be in focus and I had a gaffer and I would just tell them reference for it. I'd be like this. Let's make that happen. And I felt that like. At the bare minimum, those are like the most important things to have to make a music yeah. video. Like at the starting point, if you for sure know that the camera's gonna move right and somebody knows what they're doing with the lighting, those are such key crew positions. Yeah. To help out, you know? Because when you don't have a big budget, you have to figure you can't hire everybody. So you have to pick who from the team is gonna solve the most amount of problems in the right combination, mm -hmm. right? To get the picture to be Who's going to take the most workload off of me? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and deliver what I what I need. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what would be, in closing up here, what would be some like, 
advice or message that you would give to your younger self? Let's say 18-year-old Matt. A message from the future. Oh, man. Uh, I think it would be try, try to do a, what makes you happy, you know, and, and go that path. You know, there's there's lots of ways to make you happy. And, you know, like I said before, like making enough money so that you can sustain yourself is definitely a big thing. Yeah. Uh, but you don't need to like go this one path to make you happy. And for me, it was like working as an electrician on big movies and gaffing and DPing smaller stuff. Right. And then that slowly transitioned into having a family and having time for skating and still being able to have a career. Yeah. So like always never set in stone, like what, what is important to you? Cause that's always, that always shifts. Yeah. And for me right now, I I'm really enjoying skating, like maybe more than any other time in my mm-hmm. life. And that's what I'm setting time to doing. Yeah. But like next year it might be something else. And I'm totally let that happen. To tune into that. Right. Yeah. To not be so, so concrete on the path, mm-hmm. more on the intention, the path might change. Yeah. I think when I was younger, it was like, I need to be a DP. I need to be a DP, a cinematographer. That's what I want. And it wasn't until when I was like 31 or 32. And I'm like, I don't think that's what I want anymore. I enjoy being a gaffer. I like doing light and design and I want more time for personal stuff. Like I'm going to move away from that path that I thought since I was 18 years old, what I wanted to be. Yeah. So it sounds like what you're saying is just, just tune into what actually makes you happy. Was there anything that you were like, that you believed in that you now don't believe anything that you were wrong about anything that you're like, Hey man, I wish you wouldn't focus so much on that or whatever. I think like when it comes to cinematography, Mm. it was like you're reading Mm. books and the books are like, this Mm. is what you do to make a beautiful image. And, and then I think it took me like when I was DPing, that's what I was doing. Like, Oh, key light, fill light, backlight. That's what you have to do. Right. And then working for Larkin, he lights like very unconventionally, like bouncing lights off the ceiling and like various places. And that was always a thing in books. Like you don't do that. <laughs> and cinematography and filmmaking is like about not following the rules, like understanding what the story is and what it's supposed to look like and like reach that path however makes sense to you, whatever method you want to use. Yeah, there are no rules. I mean, you have to learn some of the technical aspects of how things work, but then how you use it is up to you. Yeah, and I think there's some DPs that I work for that are like still following some rule book and I I hate it. I'm like, how do we do this? Like, that's weird. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like, I've done it before. Like, it looks great, but like, I can say my suggestion, but at a certain point, like, I'm working for them. Right. Let them do their thing. Uh, but like you have to just let those rules go and you do need to understand the basics. And then from there, just free, free flow, whatever you think and try out different stuff. Yeah. Straight up. I mean, I think that comes with any artistic creative endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. You learn the rules so you can break them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, dude, I appreciate you coming by, man. I would love to share some of your behind the scenes videos on yeah. here as well. If we can get a rip from them from Instagram or whatever, mm-hmm. we could share some of them on there. Guys, this is Matt Ardeen. Where can they find you? 
Um, I have mattardine.com. The website's gone a little bit to shambles because <laughs> companies delete their commercials all the time. And like, I'm like, oh, why didn't I download that commercial? So lately it's been mainly Instagram. Okay. I'll put stuff on there. Just at Matt Ardeen. Sweet. And if you're looking to move to LA as a filmmaker, hit him up. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Like yeah. every day for me is fielding questions on Instagram of people moving to LA and try to help them out as much as I can. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing and vibing, bro. Thank yeah. you. Good to hang out. My guy.